Chapter Three of *The Small Bachelor* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, One. The perfect hostess makes a point of never displaying discomposure. In moments of trial, she aims at the easy repose of manner of a red Indian at the stake. Nevertheless, there was a moment when, as she saw Sigsby H. Caracol into the drawing room with George and heard him announce in a ringing voice that this fine young son of the western prairies had come to take potluck, Mrs. Waddington indisputably reeled. She recovered herself. All the woman in her was urging her to take Sigsby H. by his outstanding ears and shake him till they came unstuck, but she fought the emotion down. Gradually her glazed eye lost its dead fishy look. Like death in the poem, she grinned horrible a ghastly smile and it was with a well-assumed graciousness that she eventually extended to George the quivering right hand which, had she been a less highly civilized woman, would about now have been landing on the side of her husband's head, swung from the hip. "'Charmed,' said Mrs. Waddington. "'So very, very glad you were able to come, mister.' She paused, and George, eyeing her mistily, gathered that she wished to be informed of his name." He would have been glad to supply the information, but unfortunately at the moment he had forgotten it himself. He had a dim sort of idea that it began with an F or a G, but beyond that his mind was a blank. The fact was that, in the act of shaking hands with his hostess, George Finch had caught a sight of Molly, and the spectacle had been a little too much for him. Molly was wearing the new evening dress of which she had spoken so fillingly to her father at the recent interview, and it seemed to George as if the scales had fallen from his eyes, and he was seeing her for the first time. Before, in a vague way he had supposed that she possessed arms and shoulders and hair, but it was only at this moment that he perceived how truly these arms and those shoulders and that hair were arms and shoulders and hair in the deepest and holiest sense of the words. It was as if a goddess had thrown aside the veil. It was as if a stone statue had come to life. It was as if—well, the point we are trying to make is that George Finch was impressed. His eyes enlarged to the dimensions of saucers. The tip of his nose quivered like a rabbit's and unseen hands began to pour iced water down his spine. Mrs. Waddington, having given him a long, steady look that blistered his forehead, turned away and began to talk to a soda-water magnate. She had no real desire to ascertain George's name, though she would have read it with pleasure on a tombstone. "'Dinner is served,' announced Ferris, the butler, appearing noiselessly like a gin summoned by the rubbing of a lamp. George found himself swept up in the stampede of millionaires. He was still swallowing feebly. There are few things more embarrassing to a shy and sensitive young man than to be present at a dinner party where something seems to tell him he is not really wanted. The something that seemed to tell George Finch he was not really wanted at tonight's festive gathering was Mrs. Waddington's eye, which kept shooting down the table at intervals and reducing him to pulp at those very moments when he was beginning to feel that, if treated with gentle care and kindness, he might eventually recover. It was an eye that, like a thermos flask, could be alternately extremely hot and intensely cold. When George met it during the soup course, he had the feeling of having encountered a simoom while journeying across an African desert. When, on the other hand, it sniped him as he toyed with his fish, his sensations were those of a searcher for the pole who unexpectedly bumps into a blizzard. But whether it was cold or hot, there was always in Mrs. Waddington's gaze one constant factor, a sort of sick loathing, which nothing he could ever do, George felt, would have the power to allay. It was the kind of look which Cicero might have surprised in the eye of Jael, the wife of Heber, had he chanced to catch it immediately before she began operations with the spike. George had made one new friend that night, but not two. The consequence was that, as regards George Finch's contribution to the feast of wit and flow of soul at that dinner party, we had nothing to report. He uttered no epigrams. He told no good stories. Indeed, the only time he spoke at all was when he said sherry to the footman when he meant hock. Even, however, had the conditions been uniformly pleasant, it is to be doubted whether he would have really dominated the gathering. Mrs. Waddington, in her selection of guests, confined herself to the extremely wealthy, and while the conversation of the extremely wealthy is fascinating in its way, it tends to be a little too technical for the average man. With the soup, someone who looked like a cartoon of capital in a socialistic paper said he was glad to see that Westinghouse Common were buoyant again. A man who might have been his brother agreed that they had firmed up nicely at closing whereas Wabash Pref A, falling to seventy-three and seven-eighths, caused shakings of the head. However, one rather liked the look of Royal Dutch Oil Ordinaries at fifty-four and three-quarters. 
with the fish united beef began to tell a neat though rather long story about the bolivian land concession the gist of which was that the bolivian oil and land syndicate acquiring from the bolivian government the land and prospecting concessions of bolivia would be known as bolivian concessions limited and would have a capital of one million dollars in two hundred thousand five dollar a shares and two hundred thousand half dollar b shares and that while no cash payment was to be made to the vendor syndicate the latter was being allotted the whole of the b shares as consideration for the concession and this was where the raconteur made his point the b shares were to receive half the divisible profits and to rank equal with the a shares in any distribution of assets the story went well and conversation became general there was a certain amount of good-natured chaff about the elasticity of the form of credit handled by the commercial banks and once someone raised a laugh with a sly retort about the reserve against circulation and total deposits on the question of the collateral liability of shareholders however argument ran high and it was rather a relief when as tempers began to get a little heated mrs waddington gave the signal and the women left the table coffee having been served and cigars lighted the magnates drew together at the end of the table where mr waddington sat but mr waddington adroitly sidestepping left them and came down to george at last said mr waddington in a rumbling undertone malevolently eyeing amalgamated toothbrushes who had begun to talk about the mid-continental fiduciary conference at st louis they would shoot at that fellow's feet george agreed that such behavior could reflect nothing but credit on the west these easterners make me tired said mr waddington george confessed a similar fatigue when you think that at this very moment out in utah and arizona said mr waddington strong men are packing their saddlebags and making them secure with their lassos you kind of don't know whether to laugh or cry do you that was the very problem said george say listen said mr waddington i'll just push these pot-bellied guys off upstairs and then you and i will sneak off to my study and have a real talk two nothing spoils a tete-a-tete chat between two newly made friends more than a disposition toward reticence on the part of the senior of the pair and it was fortunate therefore that by the time he found himself seated opposite to george in his study the handy influence of zane gray and the rather generous potations in which he had indulged during dinner had brought sigsby h waddington to quite a reasonably communicative mood he had reached the stage when men talked disparagingly about their wives he tapped george on the knee informed him three times that he liked his face and began you married winch finch said george how do you mean finch asked mr waddington puzzled my name is finch what of it you called me winch why i think you thought it was my name what was winch you said just now it was finch yes it is i was saying mr waddington tapped him on the knee once more young man he said pull yourself together if your name is finch why pretend that it is winch i don't like this shiftiness it does not come well from a westerner leave this petty shilly-shallying to easterners like that vile rabble of widow and orphan oppressors upstairs all of whom have got incipient bright's disease if your name is pinch admit it like a man let your yea be yea and your nay be nay said mr waddington a little severely holding a match to the fountain pen which as will happen to the best of us in moments of emotion he had mistaken for his cigar as a matter of fact i'm not said george not what married i never said you were you asked me if i was did i yes you're sure of that said mr waddington keenly quite just after we sat down you asked me if i was married and your reply was no mr waddington breathed a sigh of relief now we have got it straight at last he said and why you beat about the bush like that i cannot imagine well what i say to you pinch and i say it very seriously as an older wiser and better looking man is this mr waddington drew thoughtfully at the fountain pen for a moment i say to you pinch be very careful when you marry that you have money of your own and having money of your own keep it never be dependent on your wife for the occasional little sums which even the most prudent man requires to see him through the day take my case when i married i was a wealthy man i had money of my own lots of it i was beloved by all being generous to a fault i bought my wife i am speaking now of my first wife a pearl necklace that cost fifty thousand dollars he cocked a bright eye at george 
and George, feeling that comment was required, said that it did him credit. "'Not credit,' said Mr. Waddington. "'Cash. Called cash. Fifty thousand dollars of it. And what happened? Shortly after I married again, I lost all my money through unfortunate speculations on the stock exchange, and became absolutely dependent on my second wife. And that is why you see me today, Winch, a broken man. I will tell you something, Pinch.' something no one suspects, and something which I have never told anybody else and wouldn't be telling you now if I didn't like your face. I am not master in my own home. No? No. Not master in my own home. I want to live in the great glorious West, and my second wife insists on remaining in the soul-destroying East. And I'll tell you something else. Mr. Waddington paused and scrutinized the fountain pen with annoyance. This darn cigar won't draw, he said petulantly. "'I think it's a fountain pen,' said George. "'A fountain pen!' Mr. Waddington, shutting one eye, tested the statement and found it correct. "'There,' he said, with a certain moody satisfaction. "'Isn't that typical of the East? You ask for cigars and they sell you fountain pens. No honesty, no sense of fair trade.' "'Miss Waddington was looking very charming at dinner, I thought,' said George, timidly broaching the subject nearest his heart. "'Yes, Pinch,' said Mr. Waddington, resuming his theme. "'My wife oppresses me.' "'How wonderfully that bobbed hair suits Miss Waddington.' "'I don't know if you noticed a pie-faced fellow with an eyeglass and a toothbrush mustache at dinner. That was Lord Hunstanton. He keeps telling me things about etiquette.' "'Very kind of him,' hazarded George. Mr. Waddington eyed him in a manner that convinced him that he had said the wrong thing. "'How do you mean, kind of him?' "'It's officious and impertinent. He is a pest,' said Mr. Waddington. "'They wouldn't stand for him in Arizona. They would put hydrophobia skunks in his bed. What does a man need with etiquette? As long as a man is fearless and upstanding and can shoot straight and look the world in the eye, what does it matter if he uses the wrong fork?' "'Exactly.' "'Or wears the wrong sort of hat?' "'I particularly admired the hat which Miss Waddington was wearing when I first saw her.' said George. It was of some soft material and of a light brown color, and— My wife. I am still speaking of my second wife. My first, poor soul, is dead. Six this Hunstanton guy unto me, and for financial reasons, darn it, I am unable to give him the good sock on the nose to which all my better instincts urge me. And guess what she's got into her head now? I can't imagine. She wants Molly to marry the fellow. I should not advise that, said George seriously. No, no, I am strongly opposed to that. So many of these Anglo-American marriages turn out unhappily. I am a man of broad sympathies and a very acute sensibility, began Mr. Waddington, apropos, apparently, of nothing. Besides, said George, I did not like the man's looks. What man? Lord Hunstanton. Don't talk of that guy. He gives me a pain in the neck. Me too, said George. And I was saying... "'Shall I tell you something?' said Mr. Waddington. "'What?' "'My second wife, not my first, wants Molly to marry him. "'Did you notice him at dinner?' "'I did,' said George patiently, "'and I did not like his looks. "'He looked to me cold and sinister, "'the sort of man who might break the heart of an impulsive young girl. "'What Miss Waddington wants, I feel convinced, "'is a husband who would give up everything for her, "'a man who would sacrifice his heart's desire "'to bring one smile to her face.' A man who would worship her, set her in a shrine, make it his only aim in life to bring her sunshine and happiness. My wife, said Mr. Waddington, is much too stout. I beg your pardon? Much too stout. Miss Waddington, if I may say so, has a singularly beautiful figure. Too much starchy food and no exercise, that's the trouble. What my wife needs is a year on a ranch riding over the prairies in God's sunshine. I happened to catch sight of Miss Waddington the other day in a riding costume. I thought it suited her admirably. So many girls look awkward in riding breeches, but Miss Waddington was charming. The costume seemed to accentuate what I might describe as that strange boyish jauntiness of carriage, which, to my mind, is one of Miss Waddington's chief. And I'll have her doing it before long. As a married man, wench, twice married, but my first wife, poor thing, passed away some years back, let me tell you something. To assert himself with his wife, to bend her to his will, how I put it that way, a man needs complete financial independence. It is no use trying to bend your wife to your will when five minutes later you've got to try and wheedle twenty-five cents out of her for a cigar. Complete financial independence is essential, Pinch. 
and that is what I am on the eve of achieving. Some little time back, having raised a certain sum of money, we did not go into the methods which I employed to do so. I bought a large block of stock on the Hollywood Motion Picture Company. Have you ever heard of the finer and better motion picture company of Hollywood, California? Let me tell you that you will. It is going to be big, and I shall very shortly make an enormous fortune. Talking of the motion pictures, said George, I do not deny that many of the women engaged in that industry are superficially attractive, but what I do maintain is that they lack Miss Waddington's intense purity of expression. To me, Miss Waddington seems like some, I shall clean up big. It is only a question of time. The first thing anyone would notice on seeing Miss Waddington, thousands and thousands of dollars, and then... A poet has spoken of a young girl as standing with reluctant feet where the brook and river meet. Mr. Waddington shook his head. It isn't only meat. What causes the real trouble is the desserts. It stands to reason that if a woman insists on cribbing herself with a rich stuff like what we were having tonight, she is bound to put on weight. If I have said it once, I have said it a hundred times. What Mr. Waddington was about to say for the hundred and first time must remain one of the historic mysteries. For, even as he drew in breath the better to say it, the door opened and a radiant vision appeared. Mr. Waddington stopped in mid-sentence, and George's heart did three backward somersaults, and crashed against his front teeth. "'Mother sent me down to see what had become of you,' said Molly. Mr. Waddington got about halfway towards a look of dignity. "'I am not aware, my dear child,' he said, "'that anything has become of me. I merely snatched the opportunity of having a quiet talk with this young friend of mine from the West.' You can't have quiet talks with your young friends when you've got a lot of important people to dinner. Important people, Mr. Waddington snorted sternly. A bunch of superfatted bits of bad news. In God's country they would be lynched on sight. Mr. Brewster Bodthorne has been asking for you particularly. He wants to play checkers. Hell, said Mr. Waddington, with the air of quoting something out of Dante. It's full of Brewster Bodthorns. Molly put her arms round her father's neck and kissed him fondly, a proceeding which drew from George a low, sharp howl of suffering, like the bubbling cry of some strong swimmer in his agony. There is a limit to what the flesh can bear. Darling, you must be good. Up you go at once and be very nice to everybody. I'll stay here and entertain Mr. His name is Pinch, said Mr. Waddington, rising reluctantly and making for the door. I met him out on the sidewalk where men are men. Get him to tell you all about the West. I can't remember when I've ever heard a man talk so arrestingly. Mr. Winch has held me spellbound, positively spellbound. And my name, he concluded, a little incoherently, groping for the door handle, is Sigsby Horatio Waddington, and I don't care who knows it. 3. The chief drawback to being a shy man is that in the actual crises of real life you are a very different person from the dashing and resourceful individual whom you have pictured in your solitary daydreams. George Finch, finding himself in the position in which he had so often yearned to be, alone with the girl he loved, felt as if his true self had been suddenly withdrawn, and an incompetent understudy substituted at the last moment. The George with whom he was familiar in daydreams was a splendid fellow, graceful, thoroughly at his ease, and full of the neatest sort of ingratiating conversation. He looked nice, and you could tell by the way he spoke that he was nice. Clever, beyond a doubt, you knew that at once by his epigrams, but not clever in that repellent, cold-hearted, modern fashion, for no matter how brilliantly his talk sparkled, it was plain all the while that his heart was in the right place, and that, despite his wonderful gifts, there was not an atom of conceit in his composition. His eyes had an attractive twinkle, his mouth curved from time to time in an alluring smile, his hands were cool and artistic, and his shirt front did not bulge. George, in short, as he had imagined himself in his daydreams, was practically the answer to the maiden's prayer. How different was this loathly changeling, who now stood on one leg in the library of number 16, 79th Street East. In the first place, the fellow had obviously not brushed his hair for several days. Also, he had omitted to wash his hands, and something had caused them to swell up and turn scarlet. Furthermore, his trousers bagged at the knees, his tie was moving up toward his left ear, and his shirt front protruded hideously, like the chest of a pouter pigeon. A noisome sight. Still, looks are not everything, and if this wretched creature had been able to talk one-tenth as well as the George of the Daydreams, something might yet have been saved out of the wreck. But the poor blister was inarticulate as well. All he seemed able to do was clear his throat, 
and what nice girl's heart has ever been won by a series of rupee coughs? And he could not even achieve a reasonably satisfactory expression. When he tried to relax his features, such as they were, into a charming smile, he merely grinned weakly. When he forced himself not to grin, his face froze into a murderous scowl. But it was his inability to speak that was searing George's soul. Actually, since the departure of Mr. Waddington, the silence had lasted for perhaps six seconds, but to George Finch it seemed like a good hour. He goaded himself to utterance. "'My name,' said George, speaking in a low, husky voice, "'is not Pinch.' "'Isn't it?' said the girl. "'How joy!' "'Norwinch. Better still.' "'It is Finch. George Finch. Splendid!' She seemed genuinely pleased. She beamed upon him as if he had brought her good news from a distant land. "'Your father,' proceeded George, not having anything to add by way of development of the theme, but unable to abandon it, "'thought it was Pinch, or Winch, but it is not. It is Finch.' His eye, roaming nervously about the room, caught hers for an instant, and he was amazed to perceive that there was in it nothing of that stunned abhorrence which he felt his appearance and behavior should rightly have aroused in any nice-minded girl.' Astounding though it seemed, she appeared to be looking at him in a sort of pleased maternal way, as if he were a child she was rather fond of. For the first time a faint far-off glimmer of light shone upon George's darkness. It would be too much to say that he was encouraged, but out of the night that covered him, black as the pit from pole to pole, there did seem to sparkle for an instant a solitary star. "'How did you come to know, father?' George could answer that. He was all right if you asked him questions." It was the having to invent topics of conversation that baffled him. I met him outside the house, and when he found that I came from the West, he asked me in to dinner. Do you mean that he rushed at you and grabbed you as you were walking by? Oh, no, I wasn't walking by. I was, uh, sort of standing on the doorstep, at least. Standing on the doorstep? Why? George's ears turned a riper red. Well, I was, uh, coming, as it were, to pay a call. A call? Yes. "'On mother?' "'On you.' The girl's eyes widened. "'On me?' "'To make inquiries.' "'What about?' "'Your dog.' "'I don't understand.' "'Well, I thought, result of the excitement and nerve strain, I thought he might be upset.' "'Because he ran away, do you mean?' "'Yes.' "'You thought he would have a nervous breakdown because he ran away?' "'Dangerous traffic,' explained George. "'Might have been run over. Reaction. Nervous collapse.' Woman's intuition is a wonderful thing. There was probably not an alienist in the land who, having listened so far, would not have sprung at George and held him down with one hand, while with the other he signed the necessary certificate of lunacy. But Molly Waddington saw deeper into the matter. She was touched, as she realized that this young man thought so highly of her that, despite his painful shyness, he was prepared to try to worm his way into her house on an excuse which even he must have recognized as pure banana oil, her heart warmed to him. More than ever, she became convinced that George was a lamb, and that she wanted to stroke his head and straighten his tie, and make cooing noises to him. "'How very sweet of you,' she said. "'Fond of dogs,' mumbled George. "'You must be fond of dogs.' "'Are you fond of dogs?' "'Yes, I'm very fond of dogs.' "'So am I. Very fond of dogs.' "'Yes?' "'Yes, very fond of dogs. Some people are not fond of dogs, but I am.' and suddenly eloquence descended upon George Finch. With gleaming eyes he broke out into a sort of litany. He began to talk easily and fluently. I am fond of Airedales and wire-haired terriers and bulldogs and Pekingese and Sealyhams and Alsatians and fox terriers and greyhounds and Aberdeens and West Highlands and Cairns and Pomeranians and Spaniels and Shipperkies and Pugs and Maltese and Yorkshires and Borzois and Bloodhounds and Bedlingtons and Pointers and Setters and Mastiffs and Newfoundlands and St. Bernards and Great Danes and Dachshunds and Collies and Chows and Poodles and— I see, said Molly. "'You're fond of dogs.' "'Yes,' said George. "'Very fond of dogs.' "'So am I. There's something about dogs.' "'Yes,' said George. "'Of course there's something about cats, too.' "'Yes, isn't there? But still, cats aren't dogs.' "'No, I've noticed that.' There was a pause, with the sinking of the heart, for the topic was one on which he felt he could rather spread himself. George perceived that the girl regarded the subject of dogs as fully threshed out. He stood for a while, licking his lips in thoughtful silence. "'So you come from the West?' said Molly. "'Yes.' "'It must be nice out there.' "'Yes.' "'Prairies and all that sort of thing.' 
Yes. You aren't a cowboy, are you? No, I am an artist, said George proudly. An artist? Paint pictures, you mean? Yes. Have you a studio? Yes. Where? Yes. I mean, near Washington Square, in a place called the Sheridan. The Sheridan? Really? Then perhaps you know Mr. Beamish. Yes, oh yes, yes. He's a dear, isn't he? I've known him all my life. Yes. It must be jolly to be an artist. Yes. I'd love to see some of your pictures. Warm thrills permeated George's system. May I send you one of them? He bleated. That's awfully sweet of you. So uplifted was George Finch by this wholly unexpected development that there was no saying what heights of eloquence he might not now have reached had he been given another ten minutes of the girl's uninterrupted society. The fact that she was prepared to accept one of his pictures seemed to bring them very close together. He had never yet met anybody who would. For the first time since their interview had begun, he felt almost at his ease. Unfortunately, at this moment the door opened, and like a sharp attack of poison gas, Mrs. Waddington floated into the room. "'What are you doing here, Molly?' she said. She gave George one of those looks of hers, and his newly-born sang-froid immediately turned blue at the roots. "'I've been talking to Mr. Finch, Mother. Isn't it interesting? Mr. Finch is an artist. He paints pictures.' Mrs. Waddington did not reply, for she had been struck suddenly dumb by a hideous discovery. Until this moment she had not examined George with any real closeness. When she had looked at him before it had been merely with the almost impersonal horror and disgust with which any hostess looks at an excrescence who at the eleventh hour horns in on one of her carefully planned dinners. His face, though revolting, had had no personal message for her. But now it was different. Suddenly this young man's foul features had become fraught with dreadful significance. Subconsciously, Mrs. Waddington had been troubled ever since she had heard them by the words Molly had spoken in her bedroom, and now they shot to the surface of her mind like gruesome things from the dark depths of some sinister pool. "'The sort of man I think I should rather like,' Molly had said, "'would be a sort of slimish, smallish man, with nice brown eyes and rather goldy, chestnutty hair.' She stared at George. Yes, he was slimish. He was also smallish. His eyes, though far from nice, were brown, that his hair was undeniably of a chestnut hue." who sort of chokes and turns pink and twists his fingers and makes funny noises and trips over his feet. Thus had the description continued, and precisely thus was the young man before her now behaving. For her gaze had had the worst effect on George Finch, and seldom in his career had he choked more throatily, turned a brighter pink, twisted his fingers into a more intricate pattern, made funnier noises, and tripped more heartily over his feet than he was doing now. Mrs. Waddington was convinced. It had been no mere imaginary figure that Molly had described— but a living, breathing pestilence, and this was he. And he was an artist. Mrs. Waddington shuddered. Of all the myriad individuals that went to make up the kaleidoscopic life of New York, she disliked artists most. They never had any money. They were dissolute and feckless. They attended dances at Webster Hall in strange costumes, and frequently played the ukulele. And this man was one of them. "'I suppose,' said Molly, "'we'd better go upstairs.' Mrs. Waddington came out of her trance. "'You had better go upstairs,' she said, emphasizing the pronoun in a manner that would have impressed itself upon the least sensitive of men. George got it nicely. "'I, uh, think, perhaps,' he mumbled, "'as it is, uh, getting late.' "'You aren't going,' said Molly, concerned. "'Certainly Mr. Finch is going,' said Mrs. Waddington, and there was that in her demeanor which suggested that at any moment she might place one hand on the scruff of his neck and the other on the seat of his trousers and heave.' If Mr. Finch has appointments to call him elsewhere, we must not detain him. Good night, Mr. Finch. Good night. Thank you for a, a very pleasant evening. It was most kind of you to come, said Mrs. Waddington. Do come again, said Molly. Mr. Finch, said Mrs. Waddington, is no doubt a very busy man. Please go upstairs immediately, Molly. Good night, Mr. Finch. She continued to regard him in a manner hardly in keeping with the fine old traditions of American hospitality. "'Ferris,' she said as the door closed. "'Madam?' "'On no pretext whatever, Ferris, is that person who has just left to be admitted to the house again.' "'Very good, madam,' said the butler. 4. It was a fair sunny morning next day when George Finch trotted up the steps of number 16, 79th Street, East, and pressed the bell. He was wearing his dove-gray suit, and under his arm was an enormous canvas wrapped in brown paper. 
After much thought, he had decided to present Molly with his favorite work, Hale Jocund Spring, a picture representing a young woman, skintily draped and obviously suffering from an advanced form of chorea, dancing with lambs in a flower-speckled field. At the moment which George had selected for her portrayal, she had, to judge from her expression, just stepped rather hard on a sharp stone. Still, she was George's masterpiece, and he intended to present her to Molly. The door opened. Ferris, the butler, appeared. "'All goods,' said Ferris, regarding George dispassionately. "'Must be delivered in the rear.' George blinked. "'I want to see Miss Waddington.' "'Miss Waddington is not at home.' "'Can I see Mr. Waddington?' asked George, accepting the second best. "'Mr. Waddington is not at home.' George hesitated a moment before he spoke again, but love conquers all. "'Can I see Mrs. Waddington?' "'Mrs. Waddington is not at home.' As the butler spoke, there proceeded from the upper regions of the home a commanding female voice that inquired of an unseen Sigsby how many times the speaker had told him not to smoke in the drawing-room. "'But I can hear her,' George pointed out. The butler shrugged his shoulders with an aloof gesture, as if disclaiming all desire to go into these mysteries. His look suggested that he thought George might possibly be psychic. "'Mrs. Waddington is not at home,' he said once more. There was a pause. "'Nice morning,' said George. "'The weather appears to be clement,' agreed Ferris. George then tumbled backward down the steps, and the interview concluded. End of chapter 3「Chapter Four of the Small Bachelor by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. One. Tell me all, said Hamilton Beamish. George told him all. The unfortunate young man was still looking licked to a splinter. For several hours he had been wandering distractedly through the streets of New York, and now he had crawled into Hamilton Beamish's apartment in the hope that a keener mind than his own might be able to detect in the encompassing clouds a silver lining which he himself had missed altogether. "'Let me get this clear,' said Hamilton Beamish. "'You called at the house?' "'Yes.' "'And the butler refused to admit you?' "'Yes.' Hamilton Beamish regarded his stricken friend compassionately. "'My poor cloth-headed George!' he said. You appear to have made a complete mess of things. By being impetuous, you have ruined everything. Why could you not have waited and let me introduce you into this house in a normal and straightforward fashion in my capacity of an old friend of the family? I would have started you right. As things are, you have allowed yourself to take on the semblance of an outcast. But when old Waddington invited me to dinner, actually invited me to dinner. You should have kicked him in the eye and made good your escape, said Hamilton Beamish firmly. Surely after all that I said to you about Sigsby H. Waddington, you were under no illusion that his patronage would make you popular in the home? Sigsby H. Waddington is one of those men who have only to express a liking for anybody to cause their wives to look on him as something out of the underworld. Sigsby H. Waddington could not bring the Prince of Wales home to dinner and get away with it, and when he drags in and lays on the mat a specimen, I use the word in the kindliest spirit, like you, and does so, moreover, five minutes before the start of a formal dinner party, thus upsetting the seating arrangements and leading to black thoughts in the kitchen. Can you blame his wife for not fawning on you? And on top of that, you pretend to be an artist. I am an artist, said George, with a flicker of spirit. It was a subject on which he held strong views. The point is a debatable one, and anyhow, you should have concealed it from Mrs. Waddington. A woman of her type looks on artists as blots on the social scheme. I told you she judged her fellow creatures entirely by their balance at the bank. I have plenty of money. How was she to know that? You tell her you are an artist and she naturally imagines you. The telephone rang shrilly, interrupting Mr. Beamish's flow of thought. There was an impatient frown on his face as he unhooked the receiver, but a moment later this had passed away, and when he spoke, it was in a kindly and indulgent tone. Ah, Molly, my child. Molly? cried George. Hamilton Beamish ignored the exclamation. Yes, he said. He's a great friend of mine. Me? said George. Hamilton Beamish continued to accord him that complete lack of attention characteristic of the efficient telephoner when addressed while at the instrument. Yes, he has been telling me about it. He is here now. Does she want me to speak to her? quavered George. Certainly I'll come at once. Hamilton Beamish replaced the receiver and stood for a while in thought. What did she say? asked George, deeply moved. This is interesting. 
said Hamilton Beamish. What did she say? This causes me to revise my views to some extent. What did she say? And yet I might have foreseen it. What did she say? Hamilton Beamish rubbed his chin meditatively. The mind of a girl works oddly. What did she say? That was Molly Waddington, said Hamilton Beamish. What did she say? I am by no means sure, said Mr. Beamish, regarding George Owlishly through his spectacles, that, after all, everything has not happened for the best. I omitted to take into my calculations the fact that what has occurred would naturally give you in the eyes of a warm-hearted girl, surrounded normally by men with incomes in six figures, a certain romantic glamour. Any girl with nice instincts must inevitably be attracted to a penniless artist whom her mother forbids her to see. What did she say? She asked me if you were a friend of mine. And then what did she say? She told me that her stepmother had forbidden you the house, and that she had been expressly ordered never to see you again. And what did she say after that? She asked me to come up to the house and have a talk. About me? So I imagine. You're going? At once. Hamilton, said George in a quivering voice. Hamilton, old man, pitch it strong. You mean, speak enthusiastically on your behalf? I mean just that. How well you put these things, Hamilton. Hamilton Beamish took up his hat and placed it on his head. It is strange, he said meditatively, that I should be assisting you in this matter. It's your good heart, said George. You have a heart of gold. You have fallen in love at first sight, and my views on love at first sight are well known. They're all wrong. My views are never wrong. I don't mean wrong exactly, said George, with sycophantic haste. I mean that in certain cases, love at first sight is the only thing. Love should be a reasoned emotion. Not if you suddenly see a girl like Molly Waddington. When I marry, said Hamilton Beamish, it will be the result of a carefully calculated process of thought. I shall first decide, after cool reflection, that I have reached the age at which it is best for me to marry. I shall then run over the list of my female friends till I have selected one whose mind and tastes are in harmony with mine. I shall then... Aren't you going to change? said George. Change what? Your clothes. If you're going to see her... I shall then, proceeded Hamilton Beamish, watch her carefully for a considerable length of time in order to assure myself that I have not allowed passion to blind me to any faults in her disposition. After that... You can't possibly call on Miss Waddington in those trousers, said George. And your shirt does not match your socks. You must... After that, provided in the interval I have not observed any more suitable candidate for my affections, I shall go to her and in a few simple words ask her to be my wife. I shall point out that my income is sufficient for two, that my morals are above reproach, that having you a really nice suit that's been properly pressed and brushed and a rather newer pair of shoes and a less floppy sort of hat and that my disposition is amiable and my habits regular, and she and I will settle down to the marriage sane. How about your cuffs? said George. What about my cuffs? Are you really going to see Miss Waddington in frayed cuffs? I am. George had nothing more to say. It was sacrilege, but there seemed no way of preventing it. As Hamilton Beamish, some quarter of an hour later, climbed in a series of efficient movements up the stairs of the green omnibus which was waiting in Washington Square, the summer afternoon had reached its best and sweetest. A red-blooded, 100% American sun still shone warmly down from a sky of leaning azure, but there had stolen into the air a bit of the cool of evening. It was the sort of day when Tin Pin Alley lyric writers suddenly realized that love rhymes with skies above and rush off, snorting, to turn out the song hit of a lifetime. Sentimentality was abroad, and gradually, without his being aware of it, its seeds began to plant themselves in the stony and uncompromising soil of Hamilton Beamish's bosom. Yes, Little by little, as the omnibus rolled on up the avenue, there began to burgeon in Hamilton Beamish a mood of gentle tolerance for his species. He no longer blamed so wholeheartedly the disposition of his fellow men to entertain toward the opposite sex on short acquaintance a warmth of emotion which could be scientifically justified only by a long and intimate knowledge of character. For the first time he began to debate within himself whether there was not something to be said for a man who was, like George Finch, plunged headlong into love with a girl to whom he had never even spoken. And it was at this precise moment, just, dramatically enough, when the bus was passing 29th Street, with its pretty and suggestive glimpse of the little church round the corner, that he noticed for the first time the girl in the seat across the way. She was a girl of chic and élan. One may go still further, a girl of espiègle and je ne sais quoi. 
She was dressed, as Hamilton Beamish's experienced eye noticed in one swift glance, in a delightful two-piece suit composed of a smart coat and fine quality rep, lined throughout with crepe de chine, over a dainty long-sleeved frock of fingered maracane, prettily pleated at the sides and finished at the neck with a small collar and kilted frill. A dress which, as every schoolboy knows, can be had in beige, grey, mid-grey, opal, snuff, powder, burnt wood, puce, brown, bottle, almond, navy, black, and dark sacks. Her color was dark sacks. Another glance enabled Hamilton Beamish to take in her hat. It was, he perceived, a becoming hat in Geda Visca straw, trimmed and bound with silk Petersham ribbon, individual without being conspicuous, artistic in line and exquisite in style, and from beneath it there strayed a single curl of about the color of a good Pekingese dog. Judging the rest of her hair by the light of this curl, Hamilton Beamish deduced that, when combing and dressing it, she just moistened the brush with a little sculpoline, thus producing a gleamy mass, sparkling with life and possessing that incomparable softness, freshness, and luxuriance, at the same time toning each single hair to grow thick, long, and strong. No doubt she had read advertisements of the tonic in the papers, and now, having bought a bottle, was seeing how healthy and youthful her hair appeared after this delightful, refreshing dressing. Her shoes were a black patent leather, her stockings of steel gray. She had that schoolgirl complexion and the skin you love to touch. All these things the trained eye of Hamilton Beamish noted, swiveling rapidly sideways and swiveling rapidly back again. But it was her face that he noted most particularly. It was just the sort of face which, if he had not had his policy of sane love all carefully mapped out, would have exercised the most disturbing effect on his emotions. Even as it was, this strong, competent man could not check as he alighted from the bus at 79th Street, a twinge of that wistful melancholy which men feel when they are letting a good thing get away from them. Sad, reflected Hamilton Beamish, as he stood upon the steps of number 16 and prepared to ring the bell, that he would never see this girl again. Naturally, a man of his stamp was not in love at first sight, but nevertheless he did not conceal it from himself that nothing would suit him better than to make her acquaintance, and, after careful study of her character and disposition, possibly discover in a year or two that it was she whom nature had intended for his mate. It was at this point in his reflections that he perceived her standing at his elbow. There are moments when even the coolest-headed efficiency expert finds it hard to maintain his poise. Hamilton Beamish was definitely taken aback, and had he been a lesser man, one would have said that he became for an instant definitely pop-eyed. Apart from the fact that he had been thinking of her and thinking of her tenderly, there was the embarrassment of standing side by side with a strange girl on a doorstep. In such a crisis, it is very difficult for a man to know precisely how to behave. Should he endeavor to create the illusion that he is not aware of her presence, or should he make some chatty remark? And if a chatty remark, what chatty remark? Hamilton Beamish was still grappling with this problem when the girl solved it for him, suddenly screwing up a face which looked even more attractive at point-blank range than it had appeared in profile. She uttered the exclamation, "Ooh, ooh!" said this girl. For a moment, all Hamilton Beamish felt was that almost ecstatic relief which comes over the man of sensibility when he finds that a pretty girl has an attractive voice. Too many times in his career he had admired girls from afar, only to discover, when they spoke, that they had voices like peacocks calling up the rain. The next instant, however, he had recognized that his companion was suffering, and his heart was filled with a blend of compassion and zeal. Her pain aroused simultaneously the pity of the man and the efficiency of the efficiency expert. "'You have something in your eye,' he said. "'A bit of dust or something.' "'Permit me,' said Hamilton Beamish. "'One of the most difficult tasks that can confront the ordinary man "'is the extraction of foreign bodies from the eye of a perfect stranger of the opposite sex. "'But Hamilton Beamish was not an ordinary man. "'Barely ten seconds later, he was replacing his handkerchief in his pocket, "'and the girl was blinking at him gratefully. "'Thank you ever so much,' she said. "'Not at all.' said Hamilton Beamish. A doctor couldn't have done it more neatly. It's just a knack. Why is it, asked the girl, that when you get a speck of dust in your eye the size of a pinpoint, it seems as big as all outdoors? Hamilton Beamish could answer that. The subject was one he had studied. A conjunctiva, a layer of mucous membrane which lines the back of the eyelids and is reflected on the front of the globe. This reflection forming the formix is extremely sensitive. This is especially so at the point where the tarsal plates of fibrous tissue are attached to the orbital margin by the superior and inferior palpebral ligaments. I see, said the girl. There was a pause. Are you calling on Mrs. Waddington? asked the girl. Aunt Miss Waddington. I've never met her. You don't know the whole family, then? 
No, only Mrs. Waddington. Would you mind ringing the bell? Hamilton Beamish pressed the button. I saw you on the omnibus, he said. Did you? Yes, I was sitting in the next seat. How odd. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Beautiful. The sun. Yes. The sky. Yes. I like the summer. So do I. When it's not too hot. Yes. Though as a matter of fact, said Hamilton Beamish, I always say that what one objects to is not the heat but the humidity. Which simply goes to prove that even efficiency experts, when they fall in love at first sight, can babble like any man of inferior intellect in the same circumstances. Strange and violent emotions were wrecking Hamilton Beamish's bosom, and, casting away the principles of a lifetime, he recognized without a trace of shame that love had come to him at last. Not creeping scientifically into his soul, as he had supposed it would, but elbowing its way in with the berserk rush of a commuter charging into the 515. Yes, he was in love, and it is proof of the completeness with which passion had blunted his intellectual faculties that he was under the impression that in the recent exchange of remarks he had been talking rather well. The door opened. Ferris appeared. He looked at the girl, not with the cold distaste which he had exhibited earlier in the day towards George Finch, but with a certain paternal affection. Ferris measured forty-six round the waist, but beauty still had its appeal for him. "'Mrs. Waddington desired me to say, miss,' he said, "'that an appointment of an urgent nature has called her elsewhere, rendering it impossible for her to see you this afternoon.' "'She might have phoned me,' the girl complained. Ferris allowed one eyebrow to flicker momentarily, conveying the idea that, while he sympathized, a spirit of loyalty forbade him to join in criticism of his employer. "'Mrs. Waddington wished to know if it would be convenient to you, miss, if she called upon you tomorrow at five o'clock?' "'All right. Thank you, miss. Miss Waddington is expecting you, sir.' Hamilton Beamish continued to stare after the girl, who, with a friendly nod in his direction, had begun to walk lightheartedly out of his life along the street. "'Who was that young lady, Ferris?' he asked. "'I could not say, sir.' "'Why couldn't you? You seem to know her just now.' "'No, sir. I had never seen the young lady before. Mrs. Waddington, however, had mentioned that she would be calling at this hour, and instructed me to give the message which I delivered.' "'Didn't Mrs. Waddington say who was calling?' "'Yes, sir. The young lady.' "'Ass,' said Hamilton Beamish. But even he was not strong man enough to say it aloud. "'I mean, didn't she tell you the young lady's name?' "'No, sir. If you will step this way, sir, I will conduct you to Miss Waddington, who is in the library.' "'It seems funny that Mrs. Waddington did not tell you the young lady's name,' brooded Hamilton Beamish. "'Very humorous, sir,' agreed the butler indulgently. Three. "'Oh, Jimmy, it was sweet of you to come,' said Molly. Hamilton Beamish patted her hand absently. He was too preoccupied to notice the hateful name by which she had addressed him. "'I have had a wonderful experience,' he said. "'So have I. I think I'm in love. I have given the matter as close attention as has been possible in the limited time at my disposal,' said Hamilton Beamish, "'and I have reached the conclusion that I, too, am in love.' "'I think I am in love with your friend George Finch.' "'I am in love with—' Hamilton Beamish paused. I don't know her name. She is a most charming girl. I met her coming up here on the bus, and we talked for a while on the front doorsteps. I took something out of her eye. Molly stared incredulously. You have fallen in love with a girl and you don't know who she is? But I thought you always said that love was a reasoned emotion and all that. One's views alter, said Hamilton Beamish. A man's intellectual perceptions do not stand still. One develops. I was never so surprised in my life. It came as a complete surprise to me, said Hamilton Beamish. It is excessively aggravating that I do not know her name, nor where she lives, nor anything about her except that she appears to be a friend, or at least an acquaintance, of your stepmother. Oh, she knows mother, does she? Apparently. She was calling here by appointment. All sorts of weird people call on mother. She is honorary secretary to about a hundred societies. This girl was of medium height with an extremely graceful figure and bright brown hair. She wore a two-piece suit with a coat of fine-quality rep over a long-sleeved frock of figured maroquine pleated at the sides and finished at the neck with a small collar and a quilted frill. Her hat was a Gedeviska straw, trimmed and bound with a silk Petersham ribbon. She had patent leather shoes, silk stockings, 
and eyes of tender gray like the mists of sunrise floating over some magic pool of fairyland. Does the description suggest anybody to you? No, I don't think so. She sounds nice. She is nice. I gazed into those eyes only for a moment, but I shall never forget them. They were deeper than the depth of waters, still that even. I could ask Mother who she is. I should be greatly obliged if you would do so, said Hamilton Beamish. Mention that it is someone upon whom she is to call at five o'clock tomorrow, and telephone me the name and address. Oh, to seize her and hold her close to me and kiss her again and again and again. And now, child, tell me of yourself. I think you mentioned that you were also in love. Yes, with George Finch. A capital fellow. He's a lambkin, admitted Molly warmly. A lambkin, if you prefer it. And I asked you to come here today to tell me what I ought to do. You see, Mother doesn't like him. So I gathered. She has forbidden him the house. Yes. I suppose it's because he has no money. Hamilton Beamish was on the point of mentioning that George had an almost indecent amount of money, but he checked himself. Who was he that he should destroy a young girl's dreams? It was as a romantic and penniless artist that George Finch had won this girl's heart. It would be cruel to reveal the fact that he was rich and the worst artist in New York. Your stepmother, he agreed, is apt to see eye to eye with Bradstreet in the restoration of her fellows. I don't care if he hasn't any money, said Molly. You know that when I marry, I get that pearl necklace that father bought for mother. It's being held in trust for me. I can sell it and get thousands of dollars, so that we shall be as right as anything. Quite. But, of course, I don't want to make a runaway marriage if I can help it. I want to be married with bridesmaids and cake and presents and photographs in the your section and everything. Naturally. So the point is, mother must learn to love George. Now listen, Jimmy, dear. Mother will be going to see her palmist very soon. She's always going to see palmists, you know. Hamilton Beamish nodded. He had not been aware of this trait in Mrs. Waddington's character, but he could believe anything of her. Now that he came to consider the matter, he recognized that Mrs. Waddington was precisely the sort of woman who, in the intervals of sitting in the salons of beauty specialists with green mud on her face, would go to palmists. And what you must do is to go to this palmist before Mother gets there, and bribe her to say that my only happiness is bound up with a brown-haired artist whose name begins with a G. I scarcely think that even a palmist would make Mrs. Waddington believe that. She believes everything Madame Unally sees in the crystal. But hardly that. No, perhaps you're right. Well, then, you must get Madame Eulalie at least to steer Mother off, Lord Hunstanton. Last night she told me in so many words that she wanted me to marry him. He's always here, and it's awful. I could do that, of course. And you will? Certainly. You're a darling. I should think she would do it for ten dollars. Twenty at the outside. Then that's settled. I knew I could rely on you. By the way, will you tell George something quite casually? Anything you wish. Just mention to him that, if he happens to be strolling in Central Park tomorrow afternoon near the zoo, we might run into each other. Very well. And now, said Molly, tell me all about George and how you came to know one another, and what you thought of him when you first saw him, and what he likes for breakfast, and what he talks about, and what he said about me. 4. It might have been expected that the passage of time, giving opportunity for quiet reflection on the subject of the illogical nature of the infatuation in which he had allowed himself to become involved, would have brought remorse to so clear and ruthless a thinker as Hamilton Beamish. It was not so, but far otherwise. As Hamilton Beamish sat in the antechamber of Madame Eulalie's office next day, he gloried in his folly, and when his better self endeavored to point out to him that what had happened was that he had allowed himself to be ensnared by a girl's face, that is to say, by a purely fortuitous arrangement of certain albuminoids and fatty molecules, all Hamilton Beamish did was to tell his better self to put its head in a bag. He was in love, and he liked it. He was in love, and proud of it. His only really coherent thought as he waited in the anteroom was a resolve to withdraw the booklet on the marriage sane from circulation and try his hand at writing a poem or two. Madam Eulalie will see you now, sir, announced the maid, breaking in upon his reverie. Hamilton Beamish entered the inner room, and having entered it, stopped dead. "'Yo!' he exclaimed. The girl gave that fleeting pat at her hair, which is always woman's reaction to the unexpected situation, and Hamilton Beamish, looking at that hair emotionally, perceived that he had been right in his yesterday's surmise. It was, as he had suspected, a gleamy mass, sparkling with life, and possessing that incomparable softness, freshness, and luxuriance. "'Why, how do you do?' said the girl. 
I'm fine, said Hamilton Beamish. We seem fated to meet. And I'm not quarreling with fate. No. No, said Hamilton Beamish. Fancy it being you. Fancy who being me? Fancy you being you. It occurred to him that he was not making himself quite clear. I mean, I was sent here with a message from Madame Eulalie, and she turns out to be you. A message? Who from? From home, corrected Hamilton Beamish. Even in the grip of love, a specialist on pure English remains a specialist on pure English. That's what I said. Who from? Hamilton Beamish smiled an indulgent smile. These little mistakes could be corrected later, possibly on the honeymoon. From Molly Waddington. She asked me to. Oh, then you don't want me to read your hand? There is nothing I want more in this world, said Hamilton Beamish warmly, than to have you read my hand. I don't have to read it to tell your character, of course, said the girl. I can see that at a glance. You can. Oh, certainly. You have a strong, dominating nature and a keen, incisive mind. You have great breadth of vision, iron determination, and marvelous insight. Yet with it all you are at heart gentle, kind, and lovable, deeply altruistic and generous to a fault. You have it in you to be a leader of men. You remind me of Julius Caesar, Shakespeare, and Napoleon Bonaparte. Tell me more, said Hamilton Beamish. If you ever fell in love... If I ever fell in love... If you ever fell in love, said the girl, raising her eyes to his and drawing a step closer, you would... Mr. Delancey Cabot, announced the maid. Oh, darn it, said Madame Eulalie. I forgot I had an appointment. Sent him in. May I wait? Breathed Hamilton Beamish devoutly. Please do. I shan't be long. She turned to the door. Come in, Mr. Cabot. Hamilton Beamish wheeled around. A long, stringy person was walking daintily into the room. He was richly, even superbly, dressed in the conventional costume of the popular clubman and pet of society. He wore lavender gloves and a carnation at his buttonhole, and a vast expanse of snowy collar encircled the neck which suggested that he might be a throwback to some giraffe ancestor. A pleasing feature of this neck was an Adam's apple that could have belonged to only one man of Hamilton Beamish's acquaintance. "'Get away!' cried Hamilton Beamish. "'What are you doing here? And what the devil does this masquerade mean?' The policeman seemed taken aback. His face became as red as his wrists, but for the collar which held him in a grip of iron, his jaw would no doubt have fallen. "'I didn't expect to find you here, Mr. Beamish,' he said apologetically. "'I didn't expect to find you here calling yourself de Courcy Belleville.' "'Delancey Cabot, sir.' "'Delancey Cabot, then.' "'I like the name,' urged the policeman. I saw it in a book. The girl was breathing hard. Is this man a policeman? She cried. Yes, he is, said Hamilton Beamish. His name is Garraway, and I am teaching him to write poetry. And what I want to know, he thundered, turning on the unhappy man, whose Adam's apple was now leaping like a young lamb in the springtime, is what are you doing here, interrupting a, interrupting a, in a short interrupting, when you ought either to be about your constabulary duties or else sitting quietly at home studying John Drinkwater. That, said Hamilton Beamish, is what I want to know. Officer Garraway coughed. <clears throat> the fact is, Mr. Beamish, I did not know that Madame Eulalie was a friend of yours. Never mind whose friend she is. But it makes all the difference, Mr. Beamish. I could now go back to headquarters and report that Madame Eulalie is above suspicion. You see, sir... I was sent here by my superior officers to effect a cop. What do you mean, effect a cop? To make an arrest, Mr. Beamish. Then do not say effect a cop. Purge yourself of these vulgarisms, Garraway. Yes, sir. I will indeed, sir. Aim at the English pure. Yes, sir. Most certainly, Mr. Beamish. And what on earth do you mean by saying that you were sent here to arrest this lady? It has been called the attention of my superior officers, Mr. Beamish, that Madame Eulalie is in the habit of telling fortunes for a monetary consideration. Against the law, sir. Hamilton Beamish snorted. Ridiculous! If that's the law, alter it. I will do my best, sir. I have had the privilege of watching Madame Eulalie engaged upon her art, and she reveals nothing but the most limpid truth, 
So go back to your superior officers and tell them to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, sir. I will, sir. And now leave us. We would be alone. Yes, Mr. Beamish, said Officer Garraway humbly. At once, Mr. Beamish. For some moments after the door had closed, the girl stood staring at Hamilton Beamish with wondering eyes. Was that man really a policeman? He was. And you handled him like that, and he said, Yes, sir, and no, sir, and crawled out on all fours? She drew a deep breath. It seems to me that you are just the sort of friend a lonely girl needs in this great city. I am only too delighted that I was able to be of service. Service is right, Mr. Beamish. My first name is Hamilton. She looked at him, amazed. You are not the Hamilton Beamish, not the man who wrote the booklets. I have written a few booklets. Why, you're my favorite author. If it hadn't been for you, I would still be moldering in a little one-horse town where there wasn't even a good soda fountain. But I got hold of a couple of your are-you-in-a-groove things, and I packed up my grip and came right along to New York to lead a larger life. If I'd known yesterday that you were Hamilton Beamish, I'd have kissed you on the doorstep. It was Hamilton Beamish's intention to point out that a curtained room, with a closed door, was an even more suitable place for such a demonstration, but even as he tried to speak, there gripped him for the first time in his life a strange, almost George Finch-like, shyness. One deprecates the modern practice of exposing the great, but Kinder compels one to speak out, and say that at this juncture Hamilton Beamish emitted a simpering giggle and began to twiddle his fingers. The strange weakness passed, and he was himself again. He adjusted his glasses firmly. Would you? he asked. Could you possibly? Do you think you could manage to come on lunch somewhere tomorrow? The girl uttered an exclamation of annoyance. Isn't that too bad? she said. I can't. The day after? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I shall be off the map for three weeks. I've got to jump on a train tomorrow and go visit the old folks back in East Gilead. It's Pop's birthday on Saturday and I never miss it. East Gilead? I know. You wouldn't have heard of the place, but it's there. But I have heard of it. A great friend of mine comes from East Gilead. You don't say. Who? A man named George Finch. She laughed amusedly. You don't actually mean to tell me that you know George Finch? He is my most intimate friend. Then I trust for your sake, said the girl, that he is not such a yap as he used to be. Hamilton Beamish reflected. Was George Finch a yap? How precisely did one estimate the yaphood of one's friends? By the word yap, you mean? I mean a yap, the sort of fellow who couldn't say boo to a goose. Hamilton Beamish had never seen George Finch in conversation with a goose, but he thought he was a good enough judge of character to be able to credit him with the ability to perform the very trivial deed of daring indicated. I fancy New York has changed, George, he replied after reflection. In fact, now that I remember, it was on more or less that very subject that I called to see you in a professional capacity. The fact is, George Finch has fallen violently in love with Molly Waddington, the stepdaughter of your client, Mrs. Waddington. You don't say. And I suppose he's too shy to come within a mile of her. On the contrary. The night before last he seems to have forced his way into the house. You might say practically forced his way. And now Mrs. Waddington has forbidden him to see Molly again fearing that he will spoil her plan of marrying the poor child to a certain Lord Hunstanden. The girl stared. You're right. George must have altered. And we were wondering, Molly and I, if we could possibly induce you to stoop to a, shall I say, a benevolent little ruse. Mrs. Waddington is coming to see you today at five, and it was Molly's suggestion that I should sound you as to whether you would consent to take a look in the crystal and tell Mrs. Waddington that you see danger threatening Molly from a dark man with an eyeglass. Of course. You well. It isn't too much to do in return for all you have done for me. Thank you, thank you, said Hamilton Beamish. I knew, the moment I set eyes on you, that you were a woman in a million. I wonder, could you possibly come to lunch one day after your return? I'd love it. I'll leave you my telephone number. Thanks. Give George my regards. I'd like to see him when I get back. You shall. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Beamish. Hamilton. Her face wore a doubtful look. I don't much like that, Hamilton. It's kind of stiff. 
Hamilton Beamish had a brief struggle with himself. My name is also James. At one time in my life, many people used to call me Jimmy. He shuddered a little, but repeated the word bravely. Jimmy. Put me on the list, said the girl. I like that much better. Goodbye, Jimmy. Goodbye, said Hamilton Beamish. So ended the first spasm of a great man's love story. A few moments later, Hamilton Beamish was walking in a sort of dance measure down the street. Near Washington Square, he gave a small boy a dollar and asked him if he was going to be president some day. Five. George, said Hamilton Beamish, I met someone today who knew you back in East Gilead. A girl. What was her name? Did Molly give you any message for me? Madam Eulily. I don't remember anyone called that. Did Molly give you any message for me? She is slim and graceful and has tender gray eyes like mists floating over some pool in fairyland. I certainly don't remember anyone in East Gilead like that. Did Molly give you any message for me? No. She didn't? George flung himself despairingly into a chair. This is the end. Oh, yes, she did, said Hamilton Beamish. I was forgetting. She told me to tell you that if you happen to be in Central Park tomorrow afternoon near the zoo, you might meet her. This is the maddest, merriest day of all the glad new year, said George Finch. End of chapter 4